Hey everyone, it's episode 33 of the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame podcast. By the way, 33, my favorite number. The more you know, the more you learn about me. 33. That's it. It's my favorite number. Which, by the way, when I was 33, it wasn't a good year for me. But like, it was my favorite number. I got to rethink my favorite number. Now that I'm thinking, I'm talking out loud. Never mind. Amazing episode for you today. Uh, also, we are less than a week away from the end of voting of the class of 2023 of the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame. Go to our website, canadiancomedyhall.com. Some fun new things there on the website, including cool links for the podcast as well, but also your chance to vote for all these amazing, great nominees, including Elvira Kurt, uh, who's part of the nominee list. Mr. Marty Short is part of the nominee list, the cast of SCTV. Amazing nominees. Amazing. Mary Walsh is on there. It's it's an incredible list of nominees. Head to our website, CanadianComedyHall.com. Okay. Hand clap. I didn't know if the hand clap was going to be heard, so I clapped and said, no time to waste. We got to jump right in. Uh, Rick Green is going to be the second. You know him as Bill from the Red Green Show. He is the second interview today. But first, it's Carolyn Taylor. Carolyn is an actress, comedian. She's best known as one of the creators and stars of the sketch comedy, amazing Canadian series, Baroness Von Sketch Show. She's got a brand new show, in, 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 and it's amazing. I, I saw the trailer, and instantly, the trailer was sent to me by email, because I'm a big deal. I'm not at all. The trailer was sent to me, and I and I, I say this in the podcast, and I believe it. It is one of the better trailers of a TV show that has been sent to me in a long time. It is very, very good. Uh, the show basically follows Carolyn on a comical, but not too comical, like a very earnest, serious quest to choreograph the perfect full-length pairs figure skating routine to the song I Have Nothing by Whitney Houston, that iconic 1992 song. The show is called I Have Nothing. Uh, it includes a, a phenomenal class. Figure skating legend, legends David Pelche, uh, Brian Orser, Kurt Browning is in it, uh, Tara Lipinski is in it, Christy Yamaguchi, Adam Rippon, Elizabeth Manley. If you're a figure skating fan, an Olympic fan like I am, you know all those names. Those are the big deals. But also Mae Martin is in this, Elvira Kirk is in this, Sabrina Jalice is in this. This show is very, very good. I've seen the whole thing. It's amazing. It came out on Crave September 23rd. It was so much fun talking to Carolyn about this show. She's such a great interview. You can tell her passion for the Olympics, figure skating, and of course, comedy. I hope you enjoy it. My interview with Carolyn Taylor on the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame podcast. I was actually born. The day I was born was February 16th, 1988, right in the middle of the Calgary Olympics. Yes. Um, when Eddie the Eagle flew, I was born. So the Cal the Olympics are like, I actually dropped my life, uh, quit everything I was doing in my life in 2010 to, to attend the Olympics, um, in, and uh, work Vancouver. in the athlete and yeah. in, in Vancouver. Yeah. So the Olympics are this huge thing in my life and obviously in yours. Um, tell me about your experience with the Calgary Olympics in 88. Well, it was, I mean, the whole country was watching, right? And we, um, it was pre-internet, right? So just imagine it was pre-internet. They, they were really building up these rivalries, the Battle of the Carmens, you know, the Battle of the Bryans, especially in figure skating. And, uh, um, you know, it's Cold War, East versus West, you know, Reagan and Thatcher and was it Gorbachev? Then like, you know, it was just like, you know, absolute madness in the world. And um and I remember being in my aunt's living room and I was glued to the TV. I guess it was our summer or not summer, sorry, our winter break. You know, you get a week off. And um, I watched those Olympics. I could not tear myself away. I was 14 or maybe I was just about to turn 15. My birthday is Feb 20th. So I think I may have turned 15 at the Battle of the Bryans, possibly. Anyway, I'm 14 or 15. And I could not uh, take my eyes off Katarina Vitt. I was, um, I, I do speak to this a bit in, in the series or quite a bit in the series, but being, you know, not even knowing I was gay, you know, closeted that I was closeted. I was like, who is this person? She is the most beautiful uh, woman I've ever seen and look at her skate and the artistry. And then watching, you know, Katya Gordieva and uh, Sergei Grinkoff, you know, the, the greatest pairs uh, do of all time, I would say. And they were just 
fabulous. And I remember being a kid thinking, oh, they'll never fall. They'll never make a mistake. They're just perfect. And they were. So um, I sort of idealized that entire cohort of skaters. They were my, you know, you have the way you have like your SNL cast. It was like, this was my <laughs> Olympic <laughs> cast. Yeah. Uh, you kind of like, I, I do anyways, and, and people that are really into the Olympics, are you still into the Olympics when it comes around it, every two it, years? It comes and goes for me. Like I came from a family and I, I made some of those discoveries in, in the series, actually, just how, uh, Olympic focus my family had been and and was but uh we had the 76 Olympics in Montreal um I didn't get to go I got a pinwheel but uh my family <laughs> went and had great memories <laughs> of it um so yeah I definitely come from an Olympic loving family and then but later I, I I didn't have the same I haven't ever had the same connection to an Olympics that I had back in 88. It's funny because we like romanticize about this Olympics and that SNL analogy is perfect. Like mine is Donovan Bailey running the 100 meter in 96. I had yeah. chicken pox. I knew exactly where I was at that yeah. time. Yes. Um, so that's it. So did you keep on coming back to this Olympics like over and over? I want to get into the stand up bit in a moment. But sure. was that just something that always came up in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I loved the theme song, you know, the David Foster's We couldn't get the rights to that uh, for the series, but uh, we had too many rights issues to deal with. But um, yeah, it just, it lived on with me, I guess, because I wasn't, it's not like I think about or was thinking about those Olympics every day, but you know, they they just had a spot in my brain and that was the mm -hmm. spot where Olympics and figure skating resided primarily so that when I had the the vision for the routine driving in the car listening to Whitney Houston those were the characters that popped in it was you know Katarina Vitt in the Carmen dress and uh Kurt Browning in one of his circa 88 uh roles where he's wearing you know the fedora and the <laughs> jean vest and, you know looking like a tough guy maybe an amalgam of like of uh, Elvis Stoico, you know, uh, Kurt Browning, all those, you know, and uh, maybe uh, um, Paul Martini, you know, the ripped jeans, all of that sort of late 80s, early 90s kind of vibe. The fedora makes a huge appearance in this show as yes. well. Um, when the show was sent to me, honestly, they were like, it's a comedy about figure skating. I just they just sent me like the the media. Okay. I was like, this is OK. What is this? Is this, you know, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of yours, regardless from Baroness Von Sketch. So I was like, I want to I want to inter interview Carolyn. Yeah. But then I saw the trailer and I was saying to Julia, who set this up from Blue Ant Media, this is one of the better trailers I've ever seen for a TV show. Oh, I wow. instantly asked for the screeners yeah. and, and jumped right in. It's uh, it's very funny. I haven't even mentioned the name of it. It's I Have Nothing. Yes. Uh, comes out September 23rd, 9 p.m. on Crave. This started as a stand-up bit uh, for you. How long were you like kind of working on this stand-up bit about uh, figure skating before it became, hey, I want to make a TV show out of this? It was, I mean, the vision of the routine came, I, I think it was maybe 2014, something like that in the car. I put it on its feet for this. So it kicked around in my head and I'd be like in the living room listening to the song and like jumping around and like, I gotta do something with this. And then put it on its feet in, um, I think it was 2016 or 2017 at, um, uh, at Buddies in Bad Times. Um, and that was electric that night. It was a book launch for Morning King's Queer Play. And, and I was asked to do some stand-up and I didn't wanna do stand-up. I was like, uh. I have nothing to say, you know, and, and then I'm like, but I do have this thing. And uh, so inspired by other performance artists on the scene, I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a shot and see if I can make it a reality. Uh, so a long answer to your question. I did that on stage now for a few years, I guess, 2016, 17, but dilettante, like I, oh, I'll just hop on your show and do it. And then I go a year, hadn't done it again, did it once in a while. And then I started telling the audience, um, I'm going to actually do this one day. And then the pandemic hit. And then I was like, well, <laughs> why not? Like, let's see, is it possible? You know, you're, you're locked in your house <laughs> for months and months. And it's like, huh, maybe there is a way to make this uh, delusion of reality. I love these like ideas like this that just like spawn into something else and something else. So you did that, like you, that show the first time you did that bit that was like the first time you did this bit. You're like, yeah. I'm just going to try this. That's I'm going to try this bit. Like yeah. I didn't know. And I, 
and I just, it was interesting because I was, uh, yeah, the thing I, I didn't want to do the stand up. I'm like, oh, what am I going to say? And I don't do stand up that often. So I'm like, ah, I don't know. And then when the moment, you know, when the inspiration arrived to, to do it, I remember I was lying down. I guess I was like depressed and I sat up. I was like, well, could try putting this on stage. And that's, you know, when an idea has that kind of energy that makes you sit up and get excited, I always know there's something there. And for me, if I can see it, then I know what I'm going towards. If I don't know what I'm going towards, I find it, well, I guess like most people, pretty hard to move forward. But when it's clear, each step became clear. The TV show was not even a God, no, I hadn't even considered that back then. It, it only appeared when it appeared. Uh, the very funny Mae Martin is in this yeah. a sidekick role, I guess you would yeah, say. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm about halfway through the series at, at this point. And, oh, okay, okay. and that's what I see. But uh, Mae is always, always hilarious. Um, yeah. When did you meet Mae? You guys have been friends for, for years. For I, I, over it, 20 like, years. Yeah. Wow. May yeah. was coming to Second City back when they were like, 13 or something like that. I was on main stage uh, performing Family Circus Maximus. I guess it was like around 2000, 2001, something like that. And Sabrina Jalice, another one of May's friends who appears mm -hmm. in episode three briefly, um, they would come, you know, all the time watching the show and bring presents and offerings and wait at the stage door and stuff. And so for a long time, I just knew May as that person that I left Second City and, you know, um, but we always sort of stayed in touch and we always really got along. We loved, you know, laughing and talking and, you know, talking about the end of the world and strange, you know, uh, alt realities and hypotheticals. And we just stayed friends and we've, I've performed this show, the Whitney Houston, uh, the routine with May, May flew to Halifax. I was performing a Halifax pride and we sort of did it side by side, you know, did our bits together. So, yeah, they're just phenomenal. And I'm so proud and excited for their career. And they were just like, are you serious? Someone greenlit this? So they having ha having seen the, the, the live performance were like, what? And so I think there was partially friendship, partially just sick curiosity, like, what is this thing going to be? And I need to be part of it. Their genuine curiosity and uh, enthusiasm for your routine like really shines through in the show. Um, so not only May, there's been so many other great, amazing Olympians from the past and, and people involved in this. Were you ever starstruck sitting down uh, with some of these people? Only, yeah. only starstruck. Only starstruck the entire time. And so um, like especially with, you know, Katya Gordieva because like I was saying, watching her in 88 and cause she was only a couple of years older than me, you know, you sort of feel like, oh, there's my contemporary, mm -hmm. but it's like, what? She <laughs> was just perfect. And so uh, I am still trying to unpack this, but the 14 year old in me just can't reconcile that I choreographed Katya Gordieva, like that perfect person on the screen. I, I don't understand the future comes and I'm 49 and I do this. Um, so I was really nervous meeting her. I think I even stutter a little and it's like, no, that's not comedy. I mean, it's comedy because I'm so tongue tied, but, uh, it's not a performance that part. I'm just nervous meeting Katya Cordieva. The, the whole series, I felt that this was like very serious and genuine that it's you both. wanted to choreograph as yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely wanted, I mean, the quest was real and the, the love for these skaters was real and and part of the thesis of the show was really doing it like it wasn't putting the comedy ahead of it saying oh well we'll engineer something and i won't really do it but we'll do this joke and and make people laugh of this fictional story it's like um it was important actually to stay true to it and that as a comedian is really scary you know to have that critical distance to lose the critical distance instead of being mm -hmm. on the sides making fun it's like no no i'm gonna do it and that's not always funny. Sometimes it's just actually really hard and, you know, frustrating and, and you're vulnerable. And so that's not a place I'm most comfortable in as a comedian leaving that. But sometimes like watching that uncomfortable moments from the outside where you're like, oh, when people realize like that's the part that I was, you know, when you're talking to these famous choreographers or skaters and they clue in and like, oh, Carolyn's like, very serious about that that's when they're like kind of like taken back by it and those are the yeah. moments of the show that i love yeah um thanks. what would you think whitney houston would think of this um <laughs> all 
Oof, I wonder. I mean, Whitney Houston has had such an effect on my life. I mean, you were born in 88, so it's a little different. But when her first album came out, I had the cassette, you know, that beautiful shot of Whitney on the cover with her hair pulled back. And she just, I, I was in, in love with her instantly and listened to so many of her songs um, growing up on repeat, you know, rewind, rewind, play, rewind. Um, so I'm a, a huge fan. And I mean, I hope Whitney would find it funny from what I've seen of Whitney, like she looks like she had a great sense of humor. And so I hope she would actually just find this hilarious and, um, and get on board. But my goodness, I have no idea what she would think or would be like, what have you done to my song? <laughs> never meant for the or even, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is she even aware of this whole figure skating world? Right. We um, used to have a scene. It was me and May. It didn't make the show, but we were lying under a tree. And we were chanting, Whitney Houston, if you want this show to be a success, let a, let a leaf drop from the tree. Uh, so. That's funny. Um, September 23rd, the show drops before you're doing, I guess, a live stage uh, a screening. Um, and, a, and a lot of the cast will, will be there for a, a Q&A um, at the Royal Theatre in Toronto. Uh, what can people expect from from that event? It's part of JFL as well. It's part of JFL. Yeah. So it's um, it's about an hour or so. So not a super long night. Um, and it's May and I are going to come out. We're going to just riff a little about... Uh, this bizarre world we find ourselves in and the manifestation of this um, strange reality. I'm going to perform the stage version of the routine, probably for the last time, because whenever I performed, it was like, hey, I have this weird idea and maybe it could happen mm. one day. And now that it's happened, I would feel strange performing it again. So I'll do one last time, uh, do the performance. We'll watch the episode and then we've got a Q&A. May is going to moderate. So May will be asking the questions and then it'll be me Kurt Browning and Sandra Bezek, I believe. But uh, I think Underhill and Martini are in the crowd. Brian Orser is going to be there, you know. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Um, Kurt Browning, he does he not, never have enthusiasm for something? That guy is Ooh. the most I, on enthusiastic person he up is. for anything. I've seen yes. a few things he's been in. Battle of the Blades, you know, yes. a show recently that was great. He's Full of energy. So, so passionate and game and so strong i mean my god he's still doing those jumps mm. i mean he's he's pretty amazing and he you know and he's really funny and um yeah it was great working with him and it and he really was a muse so katarina vitt and kurt browning were the muses because i didn't understand that you couldn't have two single skaters doing a proper pairs routine um but um yeah and all his fedora and then just he's sort of the showman you know when you think of a, a showman on the ice certainly from that generation it's him yeah yeah absolutely um at what point in the series as you're going through um without giving too much away did the stakes become real for you um where you're like oh this is you know now i'm 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 all in mm -hmm. um this is this is a real thing was there like a moment there were a few moments i think there were a few but i really have to say from kind of the beginning my center was always take it seriously, open your heart, go through it. So even when I go see the psychic in episode one, I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm going to see a psychic and I'm not going to make fun of her or to whatever. I'm going to listen to what she has to say and take it seriously. And that's, you know, so I let that be my guiding principle. So I was in my, the stakes were high that first day when I saw the psychic, I was like, I mean, I, I started crying in the in the reading or tearing up. I'm like, this isn't what's supposed to happen. Like, uh, this is wrong, but it happened. And um, and then meeting Sandra Bezik and her saying, it's no longer a joke. Like, if I get you these skaters, if you really want the best and you want Olympians and gold medalists, like you can't fuck around, it's not a joke. And mm -hmm. that was a sobering moment because it's like, okay, do I take the teenagers and just do a bunch of jokes or do I take, the greatest of all time and you know trust that i'm not going to kill them you know on the ice i was terrified so i'd say stakes are there i'm a, a nervous wreck by the end by the time they're actually performing on ice we're running out of time I, i'm again a disaster so i've got to say the stakes were high for me the whole way sandra was like an intimidating force you can tell like you know when she coaches 
yeah that's somebody you don't want to just from like watching on the show it's like whoa this person is yeah. uh and ser- takes their profession extremely seriously yes um i have a couple questions that i ask everyone Okay. That really have nothing to do with the project they are currently promoting or working on, but they're okay. just fun for me. So the first one is um, a lot of the times I do research and IMDb comes up all the time. And um, I find that it is often wrong um, yes. for I have had, yeah, you know, big time Canadian comedians on here and nobody's IMDb has been right. So I always ask this question. Yeah. And that is, do you know your first credit on IMDb? Oh, Okay. Uh, I know I've been called Carolyn Clifford Taylor. That's a different person. And there's a Carolyn (laughs) Taylor in New Zealand. So I think she has my first credit. But what would my first? I don't actually know. I have no idea. Do you know? I know. Um, Uh, So it's funny. So the other thing is nobody has ever, there's only one person. Who did I do? Uh, Daniel Woodrow. I don't know if you know Daniel, uh, Toronto comedian. He's the only person to get it right. um, His first credit. But your first credit is the the Zach Files. Ah, yes. You remember the Zach Files? I remember it well. I think I played a security guard for a CD store or something. Yeah. It's so there you go. That's your first credit on on IMDb. My other question that I always ask everyone, because this is the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame podcast, is I know you don't know who's in and who's out of the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame or who's nominated. But in your mind, going through your career in Canadian comedy, who do you think is a Hall of Famer? or future Hall of Famer for the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame? I mean, I think, I don't think she is already, but I think that Elvira Kurt should be in the Canadian Hall of, Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame. Um, to see Elvira, who has worked her entire career, like she's, uh, what, 60 now, and you see her out there, like, performing live, she can take any crowd, any even small town, like, you know, white, straight crowd, and she will get them on side. And she is just a master and she's a master improviser on stage as a stand up as well. And so I just, I'm just really in awe of her. And I know we all, you know, have different peaks and valleys of our careers, etc. And, um, but I have just always thought she's amazing. And to see her live is really a treat. Um, she can take any show and make it um amazing so i'm gonna i'm 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 voting for her to be uh to be recognized on that uh on that what is that stretch of sidewalk (laughs) (laughs) hopefully hopefully yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) it's it's yeah yeah hopefully it's a hall it's an actual oh okay yeah yes i would like a statue of her yeah yeah that that's a great answer when i think of like early comedy central specials and mm-hmm. being a kid and watching them being a comedy nerd and fan i think of elvira um she's actually nominated this year oh. for the canadian comedy hall of fame so oh, that was oh. a great choice oh okay great. um so she is nominated and and a future hall of fame for sure hall yes, of famer absolutely. for sure absolutely. absolutely um thanks so much carolyn once again um the show is i have nothing it is uh on crave this friday so september 23rd at 9 p.m yes. uh it's very very funny i recommend it to to anybody i actually uh i have a friend who used to be a coach for skate canada and i sent them the trailer this morning it's like you're gonna love this you're gonna love this show so it's it's great thanks again i really appreciate it thanks chad thanks for helping bring comedy and skating together you know the, (laughs) the combo that needs to happen thanks once again to carolyn taylor for coming on the show once again her show it's on crave now streaming it is very very funny it is called i have nothing check it out amazing time talking to carolyn it was great it was great moving on of course we always do two interviews here unless we can't get two interviews but today we have two interviews and this one was very exciting for me growing up coming home from school there was one constant that was always on tv in reruns on the comedy network or the comedy channel or pbs sometimes you would find it and that was the red green show and today i have rick green Rick D. Green is a writer, producer, director, performer, and he is well known as the co-creator of The Red Green Show and the creator of an amazing documentary, which we will talk about a bit, called ADD and Loving It. He also helped found the Toronto-based comedy troupe The Frantics. Uh, the Red Green Show, if you don't know the show, where have you lived? Are you under a rock? It was on the air for 15 seasons on various networks. Rick is a member of the Order of Canada. 
Uh, we talk all things Red Green, the early days of the show, the show moving around different networks, and a bunch of things about Rick's other projects. It was a lot of fun talking to Rick Green. I hope you enjoy it as well. Here it is, the interview coming at you right now on the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame podcast. Where did your involvement um, come into the Red Green show as as one of the uh, co-creators, producers, all that, writers uh, of the show? So my first connection with Steve Smith was watching him and his wife on Smith and Smith on Channel 11 out of Hamilton. And what I loved was that it was clearly low budget, but it was Canadian. Uh, the cast consisted of the two of them, although they then later uh, added a couple of segments where they had people coming in and doing some stand-up comedy. Uh, the issue was that uh, he wanted the frantics to come on none of us really did stand up as we were more of a troop, more Monty Python. So we figured out some stuff, we went on and that was kind of the first time we'd worked together. And it was my first experience with that very quick next, 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 because the budget was just so tight. You had a small station producing an ambitious skit comedy show, which can be expensive. Uh, you know, a sitcom, once you've got your sets built, they're built, but this was, he, he and uh, his wife played so many different characters uh, and they had these recurring sequences. Anyway, uh, not long afterwards, I think within a year or two, he approached the Frantics and said um, that he wanted us to write and um, for him because he'd been doing it all himself. And the other guys were, yeah, it's, they thought it was, uh, you know, it just wasn't what we did. What we did was very weird, but I, uh, having a second baby on the way, uh, said, sure. And not that I was carrying it, but it was coming. And uh, so I said, sure. And Steve said to me at the time, said, I don't care what you send me, whether it's good or not, but I just need somebody feeding me, uh, you know, ideas of something to work with. And sometimes he took what I sent him and, and dramatically rewrote it and kept three lines out of 20. And other times he'd tweak one or two lines. It was great. And it was very much like the way the frantics worked. Uh, the difference was the frantic stuff went back and forth. So we were kind of a unique troupe in that sense that you'd read your skit, somebody else would then take it and run with it. Uh, and if nobody did, then you knew, yeah, that's not gonna make it anywhere to the radio show or stage or television. But you could go back and forth and some stuff got five, six, seven, 10, 12 drafts. It was amazing. Uh, and you really got, because none of us were trained as writers. None of us were, you know, uh, had been through courses. So it took a while for us to really get the hang of it. And, but anyway, so yeah, so I started working with Steve on Smith and Smith doing some of the uh, sequence, the um, segments, uh, Shorty Long, the detective and the twisted roles, which was two bakers only. He played the woman and Morag, his wife played the, the guy. And, uh, and one of the characters was Red Green. And then after that, the, his wife decided to take a break and because they had, he had kids and they had kids. Uh, well, she had the kids, but he was there for some of it, obviously. <laughs> and so they, uh, they ended up, uh, he ended up starting, actually, no, sorry. His wife was still with him, but they wanted to do something a bit more ambitious. So they did a show called Comedy Mill. And that's where he met Peter Callahan and uh, Linda Cash, who's a legend, and uh, Mag Ruffman, who I had worked with with the Frantics uh, on our radio series. So uh, we... We're writing. We had a bunch of other writers come in. It wasn't just Steve and I anymore. And uh, it ran for a couple of seasons and it won a Gemini or whatever it was called back then, uh, an actor award of some kind. Uh, and it beat out a bunch of the CBC shows, uh, Codco and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, this is my memory. Maybe it didn't, but I, I recall it did. And then the next day, the uh, Channel 11 canceled the show. Uh, which was like uh, just a punch in the stomach for Steve, especially um, because he really had something going. And the legend is, and he can confirm this or not, but the legend is that they said, we're gonna give you enough money to produce something, but not enough that we care what it is. Or maybe it was he who said that to me. He said, they've given me enough money to produce something, but not enough that they care about what it is. And he didn't know what to do. He said, we'll do this for a year until we figure something else out. 
So uh, yeah, a year, 15 years later, right? <laughs> uh, so we started, um, he said, I'm going to take that character, Bill, or Reg Green, rather, and, and build around it. And I said, well, I had this character when I was younger up at the cottage, we would film all these outdoor silent comedy eight millimeter sequences. And then the character evolved with the frantics into Bill from Bala. And so from there, we, uh, I, I showed him some of the film and he said, oh, we got to have this silent comedy. And the first day we went out to shoot one of the adventures with Bill, they didn't have enough, the cameraman and the crew, by the way, I'll back up. So the first, so the first day we went out to shoot an adventure with Bill on the Red Green Show, the crew, which consisted of the producer, Steve, the director, Steve, the co-director, me, <laughs> the two stars, Steve and I, uh, cameraman, camera assist, and then props, so two people there, and then props, costumes, hair, makeup, everything else was Sandy Richardson. So there was this five of us out there. And the cameraman had forgotten to bring color film. So Steve, you know, nothing knocked him down for long. He just said, okay, it's going to be in black and white, which actually turned out to look great. Uh, yeah, it it looked like a, a classic old uh, nod to the silent comedy or the a nod to the it looked like in black and white, like we were deliberately making a nod to the silent comedy uh, of the early years. And yeah. uh, we it just, we didn't have any color film. So, but to, to have critics and others saying, oh, it's a, what a wonderful, lovely artistic choice. And like, yeah, yeah, that was it. Sure, you say so. That was gonna be one of my questions. I was like, was this a, you know, a throwback to silent comedy Chaplin and all these, you know, great early stooges, but yeah, that's wild. And it was uh, interesting because at that point, the, <clears throat> and it was interesting because at that point in time, the comedy scene was dominated by Seinfeld and, and Roseanne and all of these shows where they had uh, Ellen DeGeneres, all these different shows that had stand-up comedians. And they don't do a lot of physical comedy. You know, they don't know how to take mm -hmm. a fall. So to have this physical comedy in in the show was just such a nice change. And then, of course, Steve's voice over, ah, it looks like Bill's having a bit of a moment here. And uh, it was wonderful. <laughs> it, and what I loved was there was no script. He just watched it through once. And then okay. he improvised that dialogue. Uh, and so sometimes the timing's a bit off. He's like, watch out, Bell, Bell, well, Bell, watch out, Bell, 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 what? And he goes, oh, I'm waiting for what we know is coming. But anyway, it was great fun. We were out there. Uh, the, you know, eventually it was a few more people in the crew, but not a lot. Uh, and we laughed so hard. There were days we were just doubled over. The problem was in the early days, we we're actually using a 16 millimeter camera. So you couldn't really see, there was no playback. Uh, so we had to trust that we got it. And the cameraman, yeah, I think I got it. Well, we'll do it again, but this is film. It's like, literally we're, this, can we afford another take of this on the film? How much film right. do we have? Um, so Canadian, right? And what was interesting, and I, I started to realize in hindsight was first of all, there's no such thing as a network television show, at least back then, where the host has a beard. They just, nobody does. Uh, you know, cowboy shows, you name it. They're clean shaven. Um, second, and this is why the show would never fly today, uh, there's no women in the cast. And mm. uh, a professor at York University actually wrote, and she said, to, said in her email something to the effect of, or them, her male said, never have women on the show because we know how you behave when we're around. And part of that was, uh, I think, the message of the show that without women, this is what guys will get up to. And uh, at some point when we were talking about it, uh, I said, yeah, it'd be interesting to have a woman on the show. And Steve said, actually, there is a woman on the show. It's Harold. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, right. Because he's... He's the voice rather than Red, I think you can't be doing that from a, a nagging wife. It's just it's this powerless nephew, um, Uncle Red. Um, you think you should be, you know, doing that? And what I loved was Patrick McKenna is so gifted. He got laughs out of straight lines. There, there were scenes where he had almost nothing but straight lines to set up, and then Steve would knock him down. But 
Patrick just in those pauses and stuff and often broke Steve up and they'd have to do the scene over, but just in the pauses and the, uh, the little asides or whatever he did, or just the look he gives Steve sometimes his eyebrows would go up and she'd sort of shake his head like, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, you just knew. Um, so anyway, yeah, so the show was, dis we really, and I think what made the show hit was we wrote to make each other laugh. Steve was trying to make me laugh. I was trying to make Steve laugh. And that was true with the frantics. We were writing to make each other laugh. And when you made the others laugh, you knew this is a keeper because they've heard everything. So that was wonderful. And for three, four years, maybe three years, it was really just he and I doing all the writing. Um, the show then continued on and we never, at the end of the first season, the fan mail was astonishing. Steve ended up with a hockey bag of positive comments and email, but with real mail, like letters with photos. Mm -hmm. Here's me and my son. I'm Red. He's Harold. And, and he had it in this big hockey bag, like a duffel bag, right? So when he went in to talk to network people, they, well, you know, what are the numbers and what's this? He said, well, I don't know, but look, and he dump it out on the table. I said, you and I can debate what's funny, basically is what he was saying to them. But look, it's funny. They're laughing. And that was that was the proof in the pudding. And so then we were really writing for our fans, for the fans of the show. And, mm -hmm. and that was just a pleasure. There was no, you got to do this or address this issue. It was all addressed at one point or other. And I wrote a couple of scenes um, that um, really involved, one of them was, what I liked was that we addressed a lot of issues, but in a very light way, because it was a family show. There were people mm -hmm. in the audience. There were three generations. There was, you know, grandparents, parents, and kids. And the kids could be as young as six years old. So uh, we had to play it kind of sometimes under the, the tone. Uh, so we sometimes had to play kind of very subtly. Uh, you'll notice on the uh, handyman's corner that when he pulls out the tape, it makes this... <laughs> sound uh, when he pulls off yeah. a strip of tape it makes a fart sound and he pauses and looks down as was that me or the tape kind of thing and he just <laughs> he and then i wrote a skit where he made a couch out of uh car tires a fold out sofa bed out of car tires and he sat down and then went oh there's another skid mark on my pants and <laughs> what he did what steve did in the post was not add a laugh there because those weren't filmed in front of a live audience. Those were filmed okay. uh, because there was stuff going on. You know, there were things that were exploding and, and, and it took forever to set up shots. So while the rest of the show was filmed uh, in front of a live audience, the, a lot of the stuff, the other stuff was done out on location and then played back and the audience laughed. And then probably the second or third season when it went to PBS, maybe it was even later than that, but they message we got back was tone down the laugh track it's like mm. that's not a laugh track that's a, an audience that's how hard people were laughing and so that was it was amazing it just rang a bell with people uh and somebody in wisconsin wrote oh, god people were so funny Some, a fan wrote and said you know around here it's not considered a comedy show. It's a documentary. <laughs> you know, I think we're <laughs> hilarious. And people were sending us ideas for uh, uh, skits and telling stories. The the guy who was going to have to pay ten grand or something to get a septic tank installed, he bought a broken down van for two hundred fifty dollars, took out his backhoe, buried the van, and ran the pipe into the window of the uh, van, rolled it up, and, and that was his septic tank, was this buried van. Uh, God, it it kind of lives, <laughs> all those, uh, they kind of live on on the internet. I don't know like how active you are on Facebook and social media, but there's red-green um, groups that I've kind of looked at online over the last couple of days where people are posting their real-life possum lodge, you know, handyman corner st type stuff that they've created. So that's that must be fun to see. I'm sure some of those come across your desk and your computer screen um, oh, yeah. over the years. After that many episodes, you lose track, which surprised me. But um, I wasn't there for all 300 seasons. I was off at one point doing another series for uh, Steve's company called History Bites, my own show. And so mm -hmm. for several seasons, I was not there. 
but I don't know, maybe I'm in 220 or 210 of the episodes. And I watch Adventures with Bill from them on, on YouTube. And I'm, I have no memory. It's like vaguely, <laughs> vaguely. And then there'll be some shot and I'll go, okay, yeah, I do remember this now. Um, so that, that really um, tells you how much stuff we've done. I mean, every show, there's a thing about it, 300 episodes and every show had probably 15 segments uh mm. the, you know handyman corner and the the poems and the songs and the lobby scenes and the guests and so on so uh yeah it was it was just incredible and i know when the series finally came to an end steve rounded it off a nice number 300 20, you know 15 years 300 episodes and that was going to be it and he said to me no i, I don't think I'll, I'll never wear the plaid again uh, cause he, you know, it'd been 15 years of his life. Uh, yeah. and you know, when he wasn't, when we weren't filming, he was traveling around to shows mm -hmm. and stuff anyway. Yeah. PBS especially. Um, but it was, it was amazing. And, uh, and then of course he's a performer. He just loves to make people laugh. And he started touring as red and people came out. This is, you know, 15 years after the 15 years ended and people are still coming out. So I think there's the show had something for everybody. I mean, and the other thing about women in the show is that they were treated with such respect, as Steve said to me, you know, they're not there to defend themselves. So there's no Rodney Dangerfield kind of my wife, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, if there was a joke about a wife, it was always self-deprecating. You know, it's like the, the mm -hmm. joke about my wife says I'm lousy in bed. How can she tell in eight seconds, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So it's always the men undercutting themselves. And uh, and then at the end, I can't tell you how many women have said to me when he said, if my wife is watching, I'll be right home after the meeting. It's like, oh, he doesn't drink. He doesn't carouse. He doesn't do dangerous things. He comes home to his wife. And uh, right. that that message of just, you know, of family and of uh stability i think that's why people love the show for year after year after year kind of the i guess the spoof of the show or, or what you guys are you know uh making fun or sketching is this show called the red fisher show which was an outdoor show and i and i watched some clips on youtube you know it had a lodge i forget the name of the lodge specifically but he would go up to this fictional lodge and and have guests on fishing and hunting and that type yep. of thing now how, how much did you guys like watch that show over the seasons trying to get back to that or was that just like the initial kind of spoof when it was on smith and smith and then you kind of left that aside was that did you guys ever come back to thinking of the red fisher show so red green came out of a parody of red fisher and he decided to uh steve decided he needed a, a to play off the red and so green seemed to be the last name the funny thing is my character, Bill, his last name was Smith. So Rick Green plays Bill Smith and <laughs> Steve Smith plays Red Green. And we created these two characters years apart, separately on our own. Uh, and it was the takeoff originally was, yeah, this parody of the uh, Red Fisher show, a guy who was so boring. Steve said that he, he doesn't believe anything will bore you and he's out to prove it. And it was just so dry. Now I only saw possibly five minutes or 10 minutes of one episode and went, what the hell and turned it off. But yeah. Oh yeah. It's, fishing yeah. is, I, I'm not a fisher, uh, fisherman <laughs> uh, at all. It's just because I don't like slimy things. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so that was what the initial thing was, but then it was just off to the races. And what happened after a while was starting to, after probably five or six seasons, it's like, okay, what do we do now? And I remember we were filming Adventures with Bill up in Hamilton, up on the mountain there near, not far from the uh, transmission tower for CHCH on this lovely apple farm that this old couple owned. Uh, they used to come out and watch us, especially the day I got set on fire. The whole family came out to see that one. But uh, Big spectacle. Yeah, but on the way home, I'm driving home. Okay, more writing to do. What else can we do? And I go by this go-kart track that's right by the Burlington Skyway there. And I just, I thought, oh, that's one day I'd love to go. I should, oh, I could write about that. And so I wrote an adventure with Bill where it takes place on a go-kart track. We got there in the morning. 
And I spent probably four or five hours in a go-kart going round and round the track and directing at the same time. So I'd pull up to the cameraman and say, we're going to do this, do that. And away we go. And then he'd say, pull up again. Well, what'd you think? Do this as a little that. And we, and I had a storyboard, so I knew what I was trying to get and we would go out again. So <laughs> that was kind of the, Oh, okay. So then it was, uh, what else could we do? Snowmobile. I've never driven one. I'll never own one. Sea uh, do. I just started coming up with storylines and then eventually uh, a lot of books on camping craft on woodsman craft and, you know, how to make a stove out of two twigs and a rock or whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, what's that show alone where people are out there yeah, improvising. Oh, yeah. So there's some great books that are more about camping and things like that. But uh, yeah, that became the Bible. And then the other book that really made a difference was uh, men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. It um, that really was, there was so much in there about men uh and in a very nice way, but it's like, we do things differently. We're wired differently. Testosterone makes us different. Uh, and not always in good ways, but sometimes in good ways. Uh, so yeah, that, and then of course it just was how ridiculous can you get and how, how much fun could you have with it? And we did, uh, it was so great. Um, the show, ha sorry, the show kind of jumped around a little bit and you mentioned like CH, um, CH Channel 11 Hamilton having its start, then global for a while, YTV for a short stint. What was that like? And then finding a home on the CBC and, and of course, PBS in the States. What was that like kind of in those early days trying to find a home for the show? Because um, it had like a huge cult following. It was super popular. But just finding that home must have been um, kind of hard where you guys would get a big start and then it would kind of fall off a little bit. Yeah. The biggest frustration was finding a network that believed in the show. The channel um, that we started on, Channel 11, uh, got us going, but then they there's a change of management. And this happens all the time in television. The managers come in, a new management, and they've got a show that's drawing good numbers and doing well, and it was created and launched and, and uh, brought to life by the previous executive team, executive producer team. So they've got to make my mark. Otherwise I'm just riding on red green, which I didn't uh, green light. It wasn't my, I didn't approve of it or anything. So uh, this happens all the time where something will get canceled uh, as a new regime comes in because they've got to make their mark. So yeah, we started on channel 11 after two seasons uh, canceled, but Steve scrambled, God bless him. He scrambled and got us uh, on YTV and uh, uh, suddenly Harold was 16 years old. So that helped with the <laughs> uh, getting it on YTV because it had to be 16 or under. And, uh, and then eventually the show was picked up by CBC and the head of CBC at the time of that of English programming, I guess, said to Steve, uh, you will always have a home here as long as you want to keep doing the show. And that kind of stability and then an actual budget was mind-blowing to be able to do things you know for for me it was we were able to hire a stuntman to do some things so suddenly you know I wasn't worried about my 50 year old self going out there 40 year old self going out and doing these things and I did some really crazy things uh I I, I look at stuff now I go man that could have gone so badly um mm -hmm. But yeah, to have stunt people, to have, you know, better and better production values and all the rest uh, was great. It was just wonderful. So God bless the CBC uh, uh, for their support. It was just, it was ongoing. It was endless. And they just, they trusted us. I don't recall ever having script approval. I remember, mm. uh, you know, at the network uh, demanding yeah. changes. And yet they just developed a trust for us. And I remember I wrote a scene. And uh, it was the mail call where Harold opens the letter, dear Red, and he reads the letter. So I sent one to Steve, not knowing what he would think. And uh, it said, uh, okay, the letter says, dear Red, my brother says he's gay. How can I make him change? Or how can I, you know, how can I get yeah. him change? And the pause, what, what do I tell him? And Red and Harold just kind of looked at each other for a bit and said, well, uh, oh, how can I talk him out of being gay? And uh, Red, as I recall, Red says eventually, 
do you think someone could talk you into being gay? No, no, I don't know. <laughs> and, they just, and he did this very nice, it was very nice message about, you know, he is who he is and leave him be and you, whatever. So I sent that off. I would send scripts to Steve, email them and rarely heard back except for that, you know, it was good or um, now and then you'd hear back. We trade scripts around a bit. But literally 10 minutes later, the phone rang and he said, this is so good, we are doing this. And my admiration for him at that point just went right through the roof. I mean, I already admired what he was doing, but mm -hmm. this was gonna be a tough sell when you got seven, eight, nine-year-olds in the audience. But he just, he, he said, you know, we're doing this. And uh, so I was really proud of that kind of stuff where he just, you know, well, there's a, later on in an episode, it's Harold said, well, I think somebody says one of the members is gay. And Red says, oh, there's at least three I can think of. It was just like, yeah. and that was it. That's all it was. That was like, everybody's welcome. This show is, in the, is about the stupidity of men. That's what this show yeah. is about. And it's and having fun with that. And to, it had been so long since anyone had done that kind of physical comedy. So the Handyman Corners and the, uh, uh, and the Adventures with Bill, those were so, I mean, they were, out of the you know golden age of silent comedy and of the 70s or the, of the 40s, 50s, 60s, the Three Stooges and stuff, that was that just wasn't being done anymore. Uh, and here it, we were out there doing that stuff. I was that was me climbing up that ladder, falling out of the tree or whatever. Uh, it was, I mean, it was so much fun, so much fun. It was uh, it had that slapstick and that social conscience side of well that, that you mentioned. Um, what was the biggest stunt that you had to perform on the show? Maybe the most dangerous, the one you're like, whoa. And was there a stunt kind of two part question? Was there a stunt um, that you guys wanted to do, but you couldn't it, it never got it never got done? There were a few stunts where I was actually afraid. There was one where I was golfing. And I'm on a, uh, a step ladder, so it's like an, a V, an inverted V ladder. And I'm sitting on the top, sideways, ten feet up on a rickety aluminum—well, not rickety, on aluminum ladder. One leg down one side, one leg down the other, and I'm holding a golf club that's been extended, so it's about ten feet long. And I have to swing this and hit a golf ball, and you know, I hit it on a wide shot to cover it. But I'm up there, and it was alarming. So when we went for the close-up, uh, and I had to do the swing, we pushed the I pushed the camera in a bit. I said, "Come closer," and we put sandbags on the bottom step at the bottom of the. But that was like the ladder was rocking back and forth mm. as I was up there. And when I took the backswing, the same thing. So the, the, like the number of times we could have got hurt, or I could have got hurt, and then there were the times where I did get hurt, and it was never when I thought it was going to be. There was one a boomerang episode where I uh, uh, throwing boomerangs and eventually come in with this big four foot long plywood boomerang and wing it. And then the gag was that we would, it would come flying back towards us and we realize it's coming and we turn to run away. And behind us, we set up a bench and lined it with bottles. And one of the crew members uh, of which there were, as I say, were very, not very many took grabbed the, uh, the thing and was gonna fling it so that it came whirling in this gigantic four foot boomerang and smashed all these glass bottles that were sitting on this bench. And we had to turn and run. So I, we, I yelled action, we start the scene, we're watching our eyes are following the, the thing. So it goes around and then growing alarm, it seems to be coming right towards us. And then Steve and I turn and run. And I ran straight away from the camera and jumped over the bench and was so concerned about the thing hitting me from behind, my toe caught on the bench. I went down and really messed up my shoulder. It was, it was, I think I still have issues to this day from it. Uh, but wham, this thing came in. Uh, <laughs> it was like, oh, that was funny. Like, yeah, okay. I think my collarbone may have just popped. It was so. Normally we were really careful and a lot of camera trickery. So when it, sometimes when mm -hmm. it looked like I was way up high, I wasn't. Uh, and then towards the end, uh, we actually did 
get stunt people in. And what happened is uh, we got a great guy named Joel Harris came in and Joel was going to do some stunts for us. But I was so busy uh, with right, with History Bites at that point, I had to bow out at very short notice. I, I'm surprised Steve, Steve still talks to me. But anyway, at the last moment, I had to bail. And so uh, Joel became the new Bill. Uh, Walter was his name. And it was amazing because he could do anything uh, as a stunt. Right. And, uh, and so then there were adventures with Harold and Walter and then... Uh, uh, almost all the cast members, the regulars, got involved on adventure films at some point. They, and they loved it, of course, because they got to come out and do physical stuff. And there were no lines to remember, uh, you know. Yeah. And uh, and rather than, and you could cue people, okay, I'm going to swing my arm now, three, two, one, wham. And the other person could time their fake reaction to getting hit in the head. I love the physical part of the show. And I was going back and looking at clips. That was one of my favorite things to, to I, I mean, I, had, I hadn't revisited the show in a few years, but going back and watch those were, were, were so great. Um, I do this thing on, on this podcast and it really has nothing to do with red green, but I, I always like to ask this question because it, it's really it's it's more just fun for me. I ask everybody uh, this question, and only one person has got the correct answer so far. So the question is: it's very simple, and it pertains to you specifically. Is do you know your first credit on IMDb? I don't know if it would be there, but it would be a show that TV Ontario did after school show with teenage hosts, young hosts, and Frantics providing some comedy. Uh, but I'm not sure if that made it on there. Uh, or actually, you know, you know what? The first credit would have been for us. Uh, and again, it may not be on IMDb. The first thing I did yeah. for television was uh, a, T a CBC series called Home Fires. And it was about the people at home during World War II, the families. And I played a zoot suitor. Three of, three of the four frantics, or maybe all four of us, were zoot suitors. Uh, and there was a fight scene. Uh, in that with the stunt director who didn't know what he was doing. Um, another opportunity to get injured. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that seems to come up a lot in your career. Yeah. But yeah. that may be the, that was probably the first time I did something that was uh, approved by our, I got paid actor rates and things like that. Right. On, on IMDb, it has, um, and I think it's just the writing credit, it has all in good taste. Listed. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, that. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so all in good taste. This guy came in and he had filmed erotic acts, um, you know, st uh, stripper on a motorcycle in Amsterdam and a couple, you know, whatever in a, so it wasn't R rated. It was fairly tame, but there were probably mm -hmm. some boobs visible at some point. And I don't just mean, uh, you know, the frantics, but anyway, we were approached <laughs> to uh, do some, to write a screenplay about this guy who's going to get some funding and is going to make uh, a, a film about orphans. But of course, over the course of trying to get the film made, it ends up being about uh, strippers and, and so on. So it was really a series of skits. It was also Jim Carrey's first film. Wrote the scenes in between. They looked like they were filmed at, uh, on an eight millimeter camera with zero lighting. They were awful, but had all of these uh, names of Canadian comedians in there, Robin Duke, I think, and, and Ben Gordon, and people at the time who were the kind of backbone of the comedy scene in this country in it. Um, but the film was awful. It was just appalling, uh, <laughs> which was fine because I, I got $800. And when you have kids on the way, uh, you know, that made a difference back then. I'm always fascinated about what those first credits are for, for people who go on to, to, to amazing careers. Um, you're, you're doing some amazing work now, some ADD and ADHD advocacy, um, you know, and I'm just going through your rep website, which by the way, if people want to know, it's Rick wants to know, um, or all, all stuff for you and links to your YouTube videos and stuff like that. I found this interesting as, um, you know, Terry Bradshaw, Howie Mandel, Vanilla Ice, all these great artists, musicians, all have AD, ADD and ADHD. And so in your career, I, I'm wondering, because they always talk about ADD being a superpower for, for people. What was your, what did, was that superpower that it allowed you to write or perform or do sketch? So having ADHD was really a double-edged sword. Um, and up until I actually had a diagnosis, um, 
I had no idea what was going on. And when you can't do what everyone else can do and yet um, succeed at things that other people don't, you dismiss those things. Well, they're not important. And, you know, you, I can't do what everyone else does. What am I going to do for a living? I can't even sit still long enough or I, I can't finish this. I, I tune out in school and so on. It was only when my son was diagnosed and then I went, well, let me see this list of symptoms and went, ah, this isn't a disorder. Everyone's like this. No, I'm like this. And so my perception, I thought everybody had this going on. The five radio stations playing in their head all of the time, 24-7. Once I knew what was going on, I was able to start using some strategies that worked for me. Up until then, I had a huge amount of anxiety because, you know, I just, I didn't know if I was going to finish stuff. You couldn't, you can't trust yourself to do things, to get things done. I did, but at the expense of time with my family, time with friends, it was stressful. Once I knew what was going on, it was like, okay, this makes sense. I can do this. I can do that. And you know what? I'm never going to do that. And I'm never going to do the paperwork. I'm never going to do the production management. I could hand these things off to people who were at the other end of different spectrums, who were so organized, you know, anal retentive, uh, beyond belief. Great. We need that. You're the accounting person, right? And mm -hmm. so knowing what was going on made a big difference for me. Uh, then what happened is I was mentioning it. I got diagnosed while we were filming Red Green at the same time in that era. And uh, I mentioned to Patrick and he said, oh, I know. He said, because it's very heritable. It's, um, it's as heritable as your height. So mm. it runs in families. And I, when I was diagnosed, I thought about my dad and my grandfather who was performing on the British music hall stages, apparently back in the in the early teens or 1920s, I don't know. Um, so yeah, knowing made a difference. And what I can look back now and realize is that I, this explains why I've managed to write and perform in 700 episodes of radio and television and directed, I don't know how many of those and produced all of the History Bite stuff. And I've done stuff all over the place. I did a series for TVO for five years that was groundbreaking. Uh, that I hosted. It wasn't my show particularly at all. I, I mean, I was a host writer, but it, we interviewed, it was called Prisoners of Gravity. I was Commander Rick. I was up in space. I was stuck in a satellite. And so I was going to talk to the only people who could save the earth. And those were science fiction and speculative fiction writers, the people who were imagining. And it expanded into comic books and so on. And that ran for 130 something episodes. At the same time, I was doing Red Green. So I'm writing and hosting that and we did 30 episodes one year. And then I'm doing the Red Green Show, uh, writing, hosting, and directing. And later on doing History Bites, you know, producing, writing, co-writing, and so on. It was just all these different things that I've done. Um, I've, it's only now that I've been able to actually pause briefly, not for long, because I have ADHD, but I have that mindset <laughs> still, but to pause and go, oh my God, this is kind of amazing that we've done this. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, 12, whenever it was, two, 2009, when we did the documentary, ADD and Loving It, with Patrick McKenna getting diagnosed on camera and hearing from all these experts and then having that go to PBS and millions of lives got changed. I mean, I have thousands upon thousands of testimonials from people saying, you know, my child is finally dreaming that he could have a life or I had bought pills mm -hmm. and was out of here. Uh, after I finished the paperwork from my third divorce and fourth bankruptcy. And then I happened to catch your show and I realized what was going on. And I flushed those pills down the toilet and went and saw my doctor and, and it's been two weeks and everything's changed. So the being able to do comedy, um, I mean, I just, being able to do comedy is such a blessing and to have the opportunities to do it and to be allowed to do the stuff and not have to, uh, you know, we need this, or you got to have this guest star on, uh, so-and-so is available. It, there was none of that. We just had this incredible freedom. Uh, and that that's, you know, we, and that freedom has come from staying in Canada for me by staying here and operating on a budget that's a 10th or a 20th of what you would have if I was down in Hollywood and a 10th or 20th of the salary. But, uh, 
the freedom to create here and do stuff that just, you know, as I say, we made each other laugh. That's who we were trying to make laugh. And people and it's were iconically welcome. Canadiana too. It's iconically Canadian. Uh, yeah. The shows and the projects you you worked on. Another one I ask everyone is uh, we know Steve Smith is is nominated for the Hall of Fame. Very deserving Canadian who's done so much for Canadian comedy and and creators and you know has has just done amazing things. Um, along along with yourself and all the great work you've done in in, in TV in Canada. Uh, I'm just wondering when you think of a Hall of Famer in Canadian in Canada, who would you say that this person should be in the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame? Who else other than Steve? Other than Steve, yeah. Okay. Well, obviously me, you know. I think. You, of course, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and you as well. I'll, <laughs> I'll nominate yep, you, you nominate me. <laughs> yeah. um, that's really interesting. Uh, I'm, see, I'm not sure who's in there now, but, you know... Uh, it, John yeah, Kennedy, and I all understand. of the Second City people. Uh, right, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, I hope Dave Broadfoot is in there because he mm -hmm. was so good. Uh, the Frantics performed with him a few times at various charity events and, and so on. And he was just so funny. Uh, and he was part of Air Farce, and uh, but did all his own stuff as well, and uh, and was writing and performing, as far as I know, right up till the end of his life. Yeah, Dave Broadfit, the first actually ever inductee into the Canadian Comedy oh, Hall of there, Fame. There so you go. that's yeah. how deserving he is. So that's uh, that's a very that's a very fitting and, and great great answer. Um, thanks so much, Rick, for for You're doing welcome. this. Um, once again, your website is Rick Wants to Know. Um, dot com where you get all information on you uh, i really appreciate taking the time to to speak about steve smith and, and the red green show thanks again yeah i miss him I, I tell you i miss him so much i miss those shows it's great all right yeah. man take care once again thanks to rick green for coming on the show a lot of fun talking with him and i love those like inside stories about what it was like on set early days of canadian sitcom canadian television in the red green show that was a lot of fun ADD and loving it that was the documentary we were referring to at the end of the podcast uh, you can watch that for free on youtube free to all to see it's an amazing documentary check it out add and loving it also carolyn taylor so much fun talking to her in the first part of the show. Carolyn's new television, I guess, comedy mentory. I don't know. I might have just made that up. I don't know what this is, but it's so, so good. It is called I Have Nothing and it is live on Crave. Well, it's not live. You know what I mean? You can watch it on Crave now. It's streaming on Crave right now. It's called I Have Nothing. Thanks to Carolyn for coming on the show. Don't forget, less than a week to go to vote for who you think should be in the class of 2023 for the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame. Just go to CanadianComedyHall.com. People are also like, hey, Chad, what are you doing? You should promote yourself on this. And that's not what I what I love to do. Uh, that's not what this is for. But I will... I will do what the people want. Um, October 2nd, I'm hosting at Absolute uh, Comedy, which will be fun. I am in the roast battle at Swizzles Ottawa, hopefully all month long, which will be a ton of fun. I've never done a roast battle, but I'm excited to write some roast jokes. And something else fun for me is I am in Montreal, October 11th and 12th. I don't know the shows. I don't know where they are. I think you can like message me or something if you want to go to those shows, but October 11th and 12th, I'm doing shows in Montreal. So that's fun. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Thanks again to Carolyn. Thanks again to Rick. Have a great fall, a lovely autumn for the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame podcast. I'm Chad Newman.